Welcome to the Competitive Contractor Podcast, the go-to show for owners and leaders of engineering and construction businesses that are determined to be better. I am your host, Shubhendra Kumar, and I am on a mission to help build trailblazing businesses that will be known for transforming the engineering and construction industry. Let's get right into the discussions. Hi, everyone. I'm delighted to have Peter Colocino, the principal of Modifica Advisory, join me on the Competitive Contractor podcast today. Peter, you've been traveling uh, a lot, and I'm glad that we're able to finally take time to record this uh, podcast today. Me too. Very difficult to record from a plane, so it's great to be able to be back on solid ground so we can have the time. Yep. It's also, I guess, difficult to record while you're on the stage. I see a lot of <laughs> public presentations that you have been doing. I've been really fortunate to be in New Zealand over the last few weeks in particular. I've got to say, there's so much to learn from different places, New Zealand, the UK and Canada. So it's been fantastic to get a bit of a sense of what's going on in the Kiwi market. So maybe I can touch on that a bit too. Yeah, no, that would be that would be great. And I would love to have uh, my audience in New Zealand uh, increasing as well. So why not? Now, in today's episode, we will be attempting to piece together a jigsaw puzzle. But before we look at all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and and, and make a mess like uh, kids do, uh, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks so much, Shiv. So Peter Colacino, as you mentioned, and I'm currently the principal of Medifica Advisory. Medifica is a small consultancy working with organizations to support them in a, their change journey. I'm also NEC contracts Australian ambassador. So the NEC contract suite is, of course, uh, developed by the Institution of Civil Engineers in the UK. Uh, It's been available in Australia for close to 30 years now, and we've seen big projects like the Square Kilometre Array, as well as a number of infrastructure projects uh, using the NEC contract. And increasingly, it's pushing into new sectors like resources. So in addition to those current roles focused, as I say, on supporting change, transformation and collaboration, until recently, I was the Chief of Policy and Research for Infrastructure Australia, where I led their research program working across the Australian Infrastructure Audit and Plan, and also the delivery of the Market Capacity Program, which is really a unique global perspective on an entire country, and indeed, Australia and New Zealand to some degrees, infrastructure markets and the supply and demand challenges in order to hit the record levels of investment that we're seeing in those markets. So, of course, we're seeing uh, investment levels over 60 billion uh, in a year through major infrastructure. So really incredible levels of investment that are three times the levels of investment we saw historically. So huge levels of of investment in major infrastructure and a, a really active housing and and commercial development sector as well. And the Market Capacity Program looked at around 150 commodities, skills, plant and equipment, and looked at the supply and demand challenges across those materials. So you've been uh, very involved uh, in the industry for a long time, uh, looking at it from all aspects. I mean, if you're looking at the supply chain, you're looking at change, that's, that's pretty much everything, right? Absolutely. I mean, the supply chain is where innovation really comes from these days. As we've seen a transition in the sector away, particularly for the big contractors, away from uh, self-delivery, self-performing tasks to a role more like managing contractor. It's all about how they engage with and activate the supply chain. Mm. And whether it's in parallel sectors like automotive or aviation 
are indeed looking across production. As we've seen, organisations focus more and more on their core skills. Uh, it's pushed innovation and change into the supply chain. And that the task now is to pull that back out and make sure it's engaged and activated with delivery. Yeah. So in, in, in what way does Modifica Advisory help their clients and what segment of the construction industry makes up most of your client base? Uh, I, I work at the moment right across the sector with large and small organisations on both the public and private sector sides. Uh, I work across a, a large perspective from resources and defence through to the built environment. I work around sustainability and resilience, as well as thinking about some of the core areas of delivery. So the organization is very much focused on supporting organizations of all sizes and scale, but organizations that are fundamentally committed to the journey of change. And that, that is about embracing concepts like collaboration, social impact, sustainability, and particularly with a bent around uh, action on both carbon and biodiversity, real focus areas for regulators currently. Uh, but really, just to reiterate, it's about supporting organisations on the change journey. So those organisations that are, are trying to lead rather than follow. And the sector is changing so rapidly at the moment. It's funny, organisations that might have been leading six or 12 months ago are now having to renew themselves and their strategic focus. Yeah, no, I think we've been calling for change. Change has come. It's happening at lightning speed. And it's almost like uh, we're trying to solve the problems that uh, that we have been trying to solve for the 10 years, but also trying to solve the problems that uh, are 10, 10 years ahead of us as well. So I think uh, we are in a very good spot right now. And uh, I, I meet with a lot of people like you, and there's it's good to hear of the conversations around net zero, about inclusiveness, social procurement coming into the conversation, uh, pretty much at the same time when other industries are also talking about it. Normally, construction will be talking about it after five or ten years. Now we are in the uh, we are in the conversation, right? Yeah, and I just want to pick on that thread a little bit. So, so let's talk about the construction sector. It is the worst performer in the country for workforce diversity, particularly around gender equity. So, only two percent of jobs on site are held by females, and around fourteen percent of all roles in the sector. And there's a slant to uh, if you like, non-core support roles, um, areas like, for instance, engagement or some of the administrative focus roles rather than the core delivery roles. So women are really underrepresented in calls, core senior roles in the sector. And the result of those two things is we've got a much smaller workforce that we can try to engage with and bring into our business. And, and really, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face there. The sector is also the second worst performer for uh, digital adoption. So mm -hmm. only hunting and fishing is a slower adopter of digital transformation. Uh, it's also a sector that is failing the productivity curve. So the sector is less productive today than when the World Wide Web was introduced. So since internet has become accessible, all that information and data to inform our thinking, we've become less productive, which is unbelievable to me. And at, at the same time, we've seen parallel sectors like production and logistics growing productivity. And there's a huge opportunity to capture some of that productivity benefit and to bring it into construction and, and the built environment more broadly. And the sector has also been 
incredibly challenged around reforming, uh, particularly around commercial principles in Australia. So we've tended to rest on our laurels. We were a country that exported the PPP model for you know a long period of time, kind of in inverted commas as the Macquarie model around the world. It's done wonderful things for the depth of the Australian private finance industry, both in terms of its financial depth, but also its capability. But we've tended to, to, as I say, rest on the laurels of that time rather than pursuing some of the broader types of reform around really long-term relationships between private sector and government and much more collaborative relationships that are focused on unlocking outcomes. Yeah. Now, I think the, the the statistics that you have mentioned, those are statistics that this podcast has heard heard a lot of times. And I think the narrative that we are trying to change uh, has been very well well set by you as, as we as we go into the tough questions of this podcast. Now, as you mentioned, the con- construction industry is complex and uh, there, there's topics like productivity, resilience, social impact, sustainability, and governance that you've talked about here. I know you talk about in other forums as well as you've written that as well. So I want to explore that further with you. So while discussing productivity in a recent article in the Infrastructure Magazine, you mentioned that the industry has matured to be an active champion and participant in reforms. Uh, And they're now looking to the government for preparedness to do things differently and for the government to invest in digital transformation and modern methods of construction. In your assessment, how ready are we to deliver if the government would give the industry the green light to transform? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, a really interesting discussion. I have to say, I think the answer really needs to start with the recognition that the Australian construction industry is not one homogenous market. We very clearly have a market in Perth with players like Monodolphus or Giorgio Group, who are much more prominent on the West Coast, much greater interface with the resource sector. Uh, I think the number is somewhere between 60 and 70% of engineering work in Western Australia is, is for the private sector, uh, which is far different to, for instance, the large East Coast states, New South Wales and Victoria, where you have a much greater role for government. And the types of behaviours and also the types of familiarity with delivery methods varies based on uh, the interface with private industry. So what what we tend to see in Western Australia is much much greater role for the resources sector, as I've mentioned. In the resources sector, an area that I'm familiar with, like the NEC contract suite, is more widely understood in Australia. Some of the very big players who happen to be the largest players globally are actively using the NEC contracting suite to support collaboration, uh, both in Australia and abroad. Uh, So what we can see uh, in terms of industry preparedness in Australia Uh, sorry, in Western Australia to support contractual reform is we have an industry with a degree of familiarity and depth already who can reach into their own organisations and realise the benefits. Uh, Conversely, on the East Coast, we see, you know, very dominant transport industry investment, particularly transport for New South Wales. Um, So the numbers are something along the lines of 80% of investment in major infrastructure is in transport. 87% of major infrastructure investment is in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. 
So you could see an organisation like Transport for New, New South Wales with something like 30 to 40% of total major project spend nationally. So a very dominant role for a single client agency and therefore a very large ship to turn and a great deal of effort that's required to do so. So in that organisation, just in this contracting space, GC21 is, is very well entrenched. Uh, so there's an opportunity for change to realise benefits through piloting and, and other sort of uh, ref, reform sandpits, if you like, um, but also a very large institutional effort to drive change forward. More broadly, looking nationally, as I say, we just see construction markets of different scales and paces, Tasmania, ACT, uh, smaller markets with with some large projects underway that tend to occur periodically. The Northern Territory, some very large projects underway in the Territory, like, for instance, large solar developments, like Middle Arm, like potentially some water projects around the Ord. All of those um, very large scale projects are completely disproportionate to historical infrastructure spend in the Northern Territory. And then finally, you have... Uh, South Australia with the North-South Connector, as well as the exposure to the defence sector. So again, defence tends to operate very differently to uh, general government clients, different contractual arrangements, a much greater focus on collaboration than we've seen in civil infrastructure. So the opportunity for change does vary based on industry locality. It varies based on the relationship between government and other major infrastructure clients. Uh, but what we have now with a record level of investment, some of the largest projects that have ever been delivered in the Northern Territory, in Tassie, in the ACT, in New South Wales and Victoria is not a choice to change, but a necessity to change. And fundamentally, we have not been moving fast enough to embrace that change and to realise the benefits. And the bow wave of investment is being pushed forward with projects being delivered late, with projects being delivered over budget, with escalation rife in the sector. So we need to do more. Yeah, definitely. That's well, well summarised. And I like the examples uh, where you're comparing the East Coast with the West Coast. And some of the numbers you mentioned, I see that in the industry as well. So it's numbers that I see with normally with the clients. But yeah, you're right. There's a heavy bias to the work that uh, is in the transportation sector, with 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 one client in 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 particular. Now, the 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 if I were to look at the tiers of the market, right? You, you could of course the the bigger contractors. Some of you yeah, that you have mentioned, from your exposure to the small to medium players, how how ready are they, uh, or how eager do you feel they are with the with with driving or leading change? Because change works both ways, right? So, Absolutely. Change does need to work both ways. And we started this with the conversation that innovation and reform tends to happen at the smaller end of the market these days and, and with those benefits driven up to a prime contractor and through to a client. I just want to give one, one real example, which is digital transformation in the sector. So uh, the Australian government has uh, an advisory body, the Australian Broadband Advisory Committee, who's been working to... Uh, help industry to yield the benefits of transformation in the digital space. In, originally off the back of the delivery of the NBN, but a broader digital focus. Uh, they had a sub-working group, the Construction Expert Working Group, 
some very well-known industry players participated there, um, both in terms of the large and small end of the market uh, and also across governments um, federally and at a state and territory level. And, and what we saw through the work of that group was a, a strong preference to have uh, the small end of the construction industry drive the digital transformation. So that was a really interesting approach, in my opinion. I think we, we've seen is a precedence to date of either clients driving digital transformation or prime contractors who are looking to integrate their value chain on a particular project. But this was really a focus on yielding productivity benefits through the deployment of technology. So the, that idea for reform and innovation has, has been advice given to government. It's something that's been supported by various industry groups who participated in that forum. But I see there being really distinct barriers. And, and first of all is integration or federation of digital products is, is critical to yield long-term benefits. Whenever we talk about digital transformation, all we're talking about is information. And it's the right information available to the right people at the right time to inform better decisions. So small uh, and medium-sized contractors working in the sector should, should really think about their own digital journey as how can I drive better decisions to improve my productivity or reduce cost? And if they can find those benefits, they should be proposing them to their prime or to their client for co-investment and upside and potential downside sharing. And if they think the case stacks up on their own, as the construction ex expert working group said, they should invest in that change themselves. Mm -hmm. the, the real challenge is, I think, is those sorts of benefits are unlocked on multiple projects uh, over time and through different parts of the value chain working together. So ultimately, I think there is an inherent challenge with change being led by the small players. It'll have to be done in collaboration with the primes yeah. or indeed with the client as well. Yeah, no, that's that's very well well answered and gives gives a good uh, a, a holistic perspective on, on what needs to be done by the small to medium-sized contractors. Let's look at a different dimension uh, to, to the whole industry, uh, which is uh, social impact. And it is uh, becoming an increasingly important topic not only for just the construction industry, but also for the country. So what is the true social impact of the industry and what are some of the touch points uh, economically and politically? And is the social impact influenced more by industry or more by government policies and their initiatives? Well, let's start with the recognition that the construction and indeed the infrastructure sector more broadly are huge contributors to the Australian economy. The construction sector alone is 12 to 14%. Infrastructure holistically is more in the order of 20%. I mean, this idea that one-fifth of the economy is tied to those veins and arteries that, that connect our places or our nodes, and indeed our people is, is really fundamental to the sector. <clears throat> the built environment needs more credit in many ways for the role that it plays, underscoring not only economic performance, but also lasting social change, uh, whether it's issues like social inclusivity that can come from access to public transport, whether it's around 
better educational and health outcomes that can come from stable housing, whether it's about the impact of active transport and green space on people's health more broadly and their mental health, or indeed the role of whether it's grey or green infrastructure and disaster resilience. This, the sector is really critical to the way our society functions overall. And a true understanding of social impact needs to appreciate those breadth of benefits and impacts holistically. So um, 10, 20 years ago, when I was working in this area, social impact really just looked like a conversation around community engagement and understanding whether noise, dust and light spill was likely to impact someone who was living next to your job uh, or potentially even a business. And now it's much more holistic, thinking firstly about those direct impacts, absolutely, but evolving into thinking about employment opportunities and supply chain and indeed the social impact of your broad supply chain. Uh, and now there's this much more complex conversation, which is, uh, I think, morphed between these concepts around sustainability and social impact. And the way that I would like people to think about it holistically is the, the triple bottom line, so economic, social and environmental performance, but bringing in the fourth lens of governance. So melding the ESG considerations of listed organisations with the triple bottom line considerations of government. And, and we have seen that approach uh, supported and adopted. So Infrastructure Australia's sustainability principles, which were built into both the assessment framework for project investment and the Australian Infrastructure Plan for Reform have used the quadruple bottom line methodology. Uh, we've also seen that sort of thinking embedded in uh, both resilience recovery projects and the New South Wales Planning Social Impact Assessment. And of course, those new regulations came into effect in, uh, sorry, that new legislation came into effect in 2022. And it's now being adopted by councils. So um, you know, where I am in the east, and east of Sydney, Waverley Council is using the social impact methodology in order to uh, streamline the process for large redevelopments uh, to make sure that the impacts on the community are holistically assessed. But, you know, Queensland has had uh, its social impact assessment for large projects since 2017. The Victorians are very far advanced in this space. And what all of those adoptions or deployments have shown is that it requires more than a traditional view of thinking around impacts using economic tools. You know, the idea of using a cost benefit analysis to assess all of these changes is, is perhaps a bit narrow. We need to broaden the tools in our toolkit. We need to bring in a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, and we need to start to be very clear about the types of community we want and the objectives that we're trying to serve through investment. Yeah, no, it's a it's a much bigger topic than we sometimes make it out to be, right? So, and it's good. Like, like I I wasn't aware of uh, the initiative that the Waverley Council has. So it's good to see, of course, the 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 social impact topic at the on federal projects, on state projects. But if local government is also adopting it. That's a really good sign because what that does is it it makes it consistent across the entire industry. So that's really, really good to see. A, a question that you can choose probably not to answer if you don't want to. Uh, how do you think the outcome of the voice referendum affects the infrastructure pipeline and the construction industry? 
Look, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about this issue and it's it's not one that I've seen widely discussed and I, mm. I, I don't think fundamentally is understood. And perhaps the reason why it's not understood is because of the paucity of information that's available regarding the voice. Um, we, have, we now have the words uh, that will sit in the referendum. Uh, they've been passed by the Australian Parliament. And, of course, uh, those words include this notion of uh, a voice to the executive of government. Executive of government is not well defined or understood in the Australian constitution and, and covers everybody from the king to a bureaucrat who might be sitting working through project delivery. And uh, depending on the interpretation of the voice, it could mean that uh, the voice organisation or organisations, again, yet to be defined, uh, might have a legitimate pathway to engage with bureaucrats, uh, ministers, or indeed the king on issues associated with the delivery of a large project. So it is, it is very much in this um, ill-defined area currently and does require a lot more structure around it. And the reason why I think it's worth talking about is because it creates additional uncertainty in the industry at a time that uncertainty is rife. So what we have is a very legitimate objective, which is ensuring Indigenous Australians both have a voice uh, for issues outside of infrastructure, but I would suggest that on projects where there is a very direct and legitimate impact on, on the Indigenous community, and we've seen projects of that nature in Australia mired in controversy in the past, like the Highmarsh Island Bridge Affair, uh, we really do need to think about how a voice to parliament will interact with our sector. It is something that is a legitimate point of conversation that requires mature thinking to make sure that Indigenous Australians have a fair and reasonable opportunity to participate. Uh, and if that's intended to occur through the voice, that we're clear about what that looks like and it doesn't create additional uncertainty. Brilliant. It seems you've thought through this quite well. Are you aware of these conversations happening? Look, I think there's obviously a very active conversation within government around the referendum and its timing and its flow. Uh, we're starting to see uh, the campaign for the Yes Voice uh, activate. But I would say that I think it's important that we are able to connect the, the I guess, the tangible aspects mm. of this reform and just be for us as the construction and built environment sector, just be clear about what it means. And it could be the case that The Voice um, has no intended interactions with our sector. Um, I would say that from a public policy point of view, I would expect The Voice to be involved with planning legislation and, yeah. and issues that affect, for instance, Indigenous employment and, and businesses in our sector. I think that's very legitimate. Um, but we just need to understand whether on a project-to-project -project basis, whether the voice will be an active player in those discussions. And on projects of, you know, immense scale, I mean, 1,600 kilometres of railway on inland rail, for instance, you know, is it projects of that scale where the voice will have a role or is it on uh, projects of a much smaller scale but a much more direct impact on Indigenous Australians like remote housing? Yeah, no, a lot, lot to think about in your response, Peter. Uh, so I, I, 
I think I'll have to like I'll have to do more thinking about it. But I think a conversation does need to take place uh, because you've just opened up a whole different dimension to our understanding of how the voice uh, gets implemented at the construction industry level, right? And possibly for 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 other industries. Yeah. Look, Shiv, and if I can just add to that really quickly, mm. I just really want to emphasize this point that. Uh, of course, the reform process uh, and the discussion through the referendum is is a positive process. It's it's mm. wonderful to see yeah. Australia recognise our Indigenous Australians. It's just important to think through these mechanical aspects of how reform would be implemented and, and what it means for the sector to ensure that it can be part of driving positive change for Indigenous Australians. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an important topic. And I think you started off by talking about uncertainty. There's uh, uncertainty in all dimensions of the industry. The last thing that the industry probably wants is to get uncertainty in another dimension that is very close to the heart of so many of us. So I think just more conversation on this would give some assurance to say, yes, uh, this is not just going to be another something that we have to uh, figure out on a day-to-day -day basis without any, uh, without any clarity. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's the, 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 the conversation is important and the way you've explained it uh, makes perfect sense. We've been discussing the impact of uh, material and supply chain issues, labor shortages, and the consequent uh, mounting cost absorption that impacts industry players, right? How does the industry work itself out of the weeds to focus on emerging topics such as social impact, sustainability, the voice? Like there's just so much going on on the day-to-day -day BAU topics. And uh, how, how do we look at the topics that we've been talking earlier in this episode? Yeah, well, as we said, the sector is busier than ever before. <laughs> uh, there's more work that's going on on larger projects in these new and emerging industries as well. I mean, our, our hydrogen industry isn't something that Australia had in a meaningful and substantial way, you know, five, ten years ago. And we now see uh, a push from every jurisdiction to deliver a, a large hydrogen project. Um, we're seeing, you know, contemplation of very long, I think perhaps the world's longest undersea cable through Sun Cable, square kilometre array telescope, as I said, we're, we're doing more larger and different things than we ever had. So it's, it's no wonder that the industry and indeed clients feel overstretched. And I'd say the really important thing is to just take stock and to think about what we're about as a sector you know, are we about building things? Are we about pouring concrete? Are we about reinforcing steel? Or are we about the services or indeed the benefits that projects unlock? Because I'd argue we're actually about the latter. Mm. And you've seen that transformation in the property sector decades ago, right? A much greater reflection on urban spaces and built environment broadly and, and amenity. And we've seen the infrastructure sector probably over the last 10 years, particularly around transport, really embrace the notion of the customer. And, you know, an organisation that I used to work with, Kiel's Downer's catchphrase, which is seared into my brain, is think like a passenger. And I, I think that type of mentality has built in the sector and is now moving into water and energy in a much more meaningful way. So the first point is to just take stock of what we're about. Uh, to try to define those outcomes holistically and embed them through the types of measures and incentives that are set by clients and organisations for success. Uh, because if the industry is rewarded for pouring concrete, it will pour concrete. If the industry is rewarded for driving 
change in either the greening of the local environment, as we've seen a big push around pocket parks and urban greening, if it's about building disaster resilience, as we're likely to see in places like Lismore or the fire-affected recovery effort off the back of Black Sunday, or indeed many other places, then we'll see a focus on those issues. So I'd just really point to this focus on outcomes. And indeed, I think we need at both a national and each jurisdiction, i.e. each state level, some clarity of the outcomes that governments are striving for so that they can be embedded through organisations, delivery authorities, and ultimately through to projects and operations. But the sector itself, the industry, uh, at profit margins in the order of 3 to 5%, probably has the opportunity for a bit of soul-searching itself. We shouldn't be sitting back waiting on government to drive change. We should be looking at areas, as you said, like sustainability, uh, where reducing carbon in our construction processes is fundamentally about reducing energy. Reducing energy is about reducing cost. So if we're in an environment of low margins, we should be looking at those opportunities for innovation and reform in order to unlock those types of savings in, in private sector delivery organisations themselves. Yeah, no, I agree. What role does long-term planning play in all of this, right? So for businesses to really start looking at how they deliver, what they invest in, the type of people, the type of technology they bring in. Uh, we, we are seeing shorter infrastructure planning cycles with elections and just the way the world is changing. Would the industry benefit from a more uh, forward-looking long-term planning? Yeah, well, every jurisdiction in Australia now, uh, bar Queensland, has an independent infrastructure body setting long-term plans. And in, in Queensland, state developments are filling that role. Um, so we, we do have a much more cohesive long-term planning cycle. I would call out, though, Victoria doesn't have a long-term transport plan, which as the jurisdiction with the second highest, I believe, or perhaps the highest transport expenditure, the largest transport project ever undertaken in Australia in suburban rail loop at over $100 billion, uh, a long-term transport plan is probably overdue. Um, but there is, there is absolutely benefit in... Defining a plan designed to unlock long-term outcomes, to chain together the actions that are required across multiple disciplines, to ensure that the options for unlocking change, particularly the non-built options, are fully considered. And we, we should be really clear about this. Building, so intervening in the system through a project, uh, should be considered against a non-build solution. And, and where possible, Often the non-build solution should be delivered because of its lower cost, its increased speed of delivery, and ultimately its flexibility long-term to refinement. So long-term plans allow us to consider those changes and, and to understand how connected individual actions or interventions are and how they can drive system-level change. I'd say as well as the role of these long-term planning processes, it's, it's also really important to consider the role of data uh, and indeed the connectivity of disparate models. So we now have organisations like Sentient Hubs uh, out of Western Australia, so homegrown technology, world leading, acknowledged as such by the likes of Google and Microsoft, able to layer interrelated 
models or sorry, unrelated models on top of each other and understand, for instance, the impacts of climate change on weather, weather on mm. uh, water patterns, water patterns on availability of water and ultimately uh, on the farming and agricultural sector. So organisations like Sentient Hubs leading that process and efforts like the Gemini principles from the Centre for Digitally Built Britain, helping to define digital integration and another effort like the Enabling Better Infrastructure Initiative out of the Institutional Civil Engineers in the UK, an effort I should say I'm involved with, uh, setting what good looks like for long-term planning and practice. And we've seen organisations like in New Zealand, Tewahanga, the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission, now commit to an infrastructure priority list modelled on the success in Australia. And in many ways aligned to those best practice principles out of the UK. So there really is this great opportunity to drive lasting change through those long-term processes, processes tied to both investment and reform. Yeah. So I think what I take away also from your response is that we don't have to all reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of work happening globally and also a lot of a lot can be done at the industry level. Uh, so we all don't have to go and create our own approaches at state, at business level, at the project uh, project level. Peter, we're nearly going to be out of time, uh, but I wanted to, with with all the insights you've provided, there's, uh, uh, I know the audience would be looking for your advice uh, for their businesses. So what would be your advice for small and medium-sized construction businesses who, are, who aspire to, be, to grow and be prominent players in the delivery of our future infrastructure? Shiv, look, the first thing I'd say is there are, there are people like you and I who are in the sector who work with organisations to support change today. So to your point, not only do you not have to reinvent the wheel, but you also don't have to go on the journey alone. There are others yeah. that would like to share their experience and insight and need collaborators and partners in order to unlock their own change. So uh, talking to people like you and I, is a really great first step. And I, I'd like to call out your podcast, uh, but also your work in the sector more broadly as really being critical to the sector at this time that there's the financial crunch. You need to unlock um, some of those internal efficiencies and, and to have a clear strategy to realise change. So, so the first thing for organisations is to talk to others, to seek advice, uh, to look to proven best practice uh, and often there's opportunities from outside of Australia to drive that change. Uh, I'd also have a look at uh, who else is in your value chain who might offer the opportunity uh, for partnership. So if you are, for instance, a designer who you might be able to work with in the engineering fraternity in order to test and trial, or perhaps partnering with a digital service provider in order to uh, realise a change in the digital space before unlocking it in the built environment. And we're seeing more and more, whether it's Martin Locke, who's working across UTS, University of Sydney and Uni of New South Wales, whether it's Jennifer White and the team at the John Grill Institute for Project Leadership, that we're seeing academia leaning to this discussion. So there's opportunities both in industry and through a mature academic sector. Yeah, so it's leveraging the knowledge and expertise that already exists. And going back to the point we talked about earlier, not reinventing the, the wheel, right? Where can people get more information about you and uh, Modifica Advisory? Uh, well, the first place to have a look is on LinkedIn. Uh, I love to share information uh, with 
that network that I have myself through LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, so just looking for Peter Colacino is easy to find me. Uh, you can hear me speak over the next coming weeks at Engineers Australia's Project Governance Forum. So jump onto Engineers Australia's website. And if you're in Sydney, you can attend in person or you can attend online. And I'll also be lecturing alongside Martin Locke at UTS on collaborative contracting in the not too distant future. So whatever your uh, poison is, there's an opportunity to hear more from me. Wow. So, so you, you, you might have 30 hour days. <laughs> You've been programmed differently, but yeah, it's good to see the amount of con the, the contribution you're making to the industry through the various different platforms and really taking the industry from here to there. And it's been lovely having you on this podcast. Uh, the discussion I think we'll be having future conversations uh, on, on this, on this podcast as well. So really appreciate your time uh, and the effort you've taken out uh, to share the insights with us, to, to, to be with us uh, today. Peter, thank you very much and wish you all the best with your endeavors and I look forward to catching up with you in some future episodes. Thank you so much, Shiv. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you found this episode insightful. Join us as we explore the theme of trailblazing visions, crafting construction's future narrative further in the next episode. In the meantime, do contact us if you would like to join our growing community of trailblazing businesses that we know will be known for transforming the engineering and construction industry. See you next time.